In this discussion, we will explore how you can inspire and encourage curiosity in your students when teaching primary year science, particularly focusing on practical and actionable strategies that might help you develop your own classroom practice. We'll consider how building suspension and using play can encourage a lifelong curiosity and spike excitement and inspiration in young students. We'll also touch on how fostering a love of science might have a knock-on effect across other subjects at school. So I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by my guest today. Um, if we could do maybe some quick introductions, uh, Jules, do you want to do you want to go first? Hi, I'm Jules Pottle. Um, I'm a primary school teacher two days a week in my local school. And um, in the other three days of the week, I train teachers in storytelling and science through storytelling. And I um, write for various publishers, including DK. Excellent stuff. And Jules is uh, guest hosting this discussion, which is great. So, yeah. Um, Chris, um, Jules, go next. Hello, my name is Chris Roach. I'm head of secondary in Sharjah English School in the United Arab Emirates, and I'm in charge of curriculum development and STEM project work within our school in secondary. Fantastic. Thanks, Chris. Um, Anna. Hi, I'm Anna Vekosta. I'm the current head of primary school in an international IB school in southern Austria. And myself, I'm also a science teacher, biology and geology. Delighted to be joined by all you guys. Um, Jules, I think, yeah, I'll hand over, hand over to you to, um, to start the conversation. Great, thank you. So our first question is, how can teachers ensure that all students, regardless of their learning style or ability, are motivated and engaged in science lessons? And I mean, this is a really interesting question because um, when you look at primary school teachers, it's something like only 3% have science as a background. So if you haven't got that as a background, how, how, how are we going to ensure that all students are going to be taught in something in a way that's engaging for everybody. So, uh, Chris, would you like to pick up on that one? Yes, certainly. Sorry for that. Um, so, yes, in order to engage our lower students, it has to come from a personal motivation. Even if a staff member is maybe not confident in science, they should at least um, exert excitement and promote an opportunity for students to be engaged, even if it's not their own personal interest, because that individuality and that enthusiasm really makes a big difference into the engagement of our lower learners, at least. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I see that all the time. I see a lot of uh, teachers teaching science who have no science background, but they really enjoy the lessons because they're active and they inspire um, excitement in the children and they really want to learn more about it as a result. Anna, what would you like to bring? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I do see that um, hesitancy in primary teachers, not all, but, you know, many of them just don't feel comfortable teaching science because they haven't had the right background for that. And I, I do think that it's really, uh, really important that the primary teachers do establish a collaboration opportunity with the um, secondary teachers, um, because, you know, that collaboration will uh, help those teachers to feel better equipped to exchange ideas for their units. Um, but also, you know, in the in the in the primary school uh, leadership, some decisions have to be made in terms of, you know, providing professional development for those teachers, you know, investing on resources so that they feel that they have what they need 
to really teach science? Because I think science is a subject that everyone likes. I think I you're right. <laughs> I, think you're right. I think children love science. They love science lessons. They love the the challenges it presents and, uh, and the difficult questions you have to answer and the thinking, the solving of the pro of problems and puzzles, but also the opportunity sometimes to just play and to find out what happens or discover something new. And you see the delight in their faces. And it's Definitely. not necessarily the children that. Um, are stopping it it's this it's often teachers like you say feeling not very confident about yeah. teaching science feeling like they're going to get to a point where a child knows something and they don't know or says something and they don't know if it's uh, right or wrong or how to take it from there and I think linking up with um, someone from secondary who has much more training is a really good plan and getting inviting them in to do lessons and making use of all of the resources that are out there uh, that have been made by people who do uh, like teaching science and have some science background. So during lockdown, one of the things I did for DK was um, the DK Stay Home Science Lab, which was filmed in my kitchen with only stuff that I could use at home. So you don't need specialist equipment for it, which primary schools often don't have lots of because my school has no budget for science. So it's constantly me bringing in and making stuff. And um, so that using just what was at home, I filmed science lessons and crammed them into a 10 minute slot. And those are all available on YouTube. So you can go out and find, you know, things to support you. And even if you watch them as a teacher and then get the idea of how to do it, and then you can go off and do those lessons yourself. Those are, are really useful things to do, but even better have someone alongside you. And that's something I've done in my school. I've worked alongside teachers literally every week, short meeting, what's next, explore their understanding and then help them to teach it. So rely on your peers, go find the person who is enjoying it. And if there isn't one in your school, go find one in the secondary school. I think that's a really key uh, thing. Chris, does your school team up with any other schools to do that sort of mentoring for science lessons or going in and doing uh, one-off activities with them? Um, in the wider Middle East, it's not really something that's kind of uh, promoted as much as it, it probably could do. I mean, I do liaise with other heads of subject more around curriculum and design rather than actual transitions. I'd like to expand on a point you mentioned there about doing it at home. Uh, like, for example, one of the things we've started to do more of is, is home projects where they get to build stuff. It's not designed to be a taxing uh, expectation to go buy loads of stuff, loads of it. You know, it's, it's nothing like that at all. It's easily accessible material that kids can get engaged with and also parents can get engaged with. I actually have... Um, a model of a guitar that uh, one of my students had made from recyclable uh, materials at home. Uh, the instructions were just go make an instrument that works or a replica. And I think that engagement outside of class is really something that can be promoted more. And also in collaboration with wider community schools as well. One of the things in the Middle East during lockdown, as you mentioned, uh, a corporation adnoc had actually developed a stem program where they released materials and it and it showed that you know globally as well as the uae people at home were getting involved in science and it's not just a school academic subject so i think that's something that really needs to be emphasized in that that kind of area too yeah science is everywhere absolutely yes. 
And if you focus in on any one thing happening in your little bit of the universe, you can find the science in it. And that's that's really exciting when they realise that. Does, does your guitar work? Uh, it doesn't actually play, but that's a point of review. He made the strings out of um, elastic rather than, I mean, um, it's got a little bit of tune, but uh, metal would have been better. And that's a point of review. <laughs> so that's something that the, you then talked about and there was learning yes. in that moment. The reflection of how to improve the design, which is not necessarily just science, but a logic and a process. I think we need to move away from science as a subject to a process of understanding and learning. Yeah, a way of thinking and sort of scientific habits. We, do, we did a, um, an experiment on, it was based from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I often use stories because they engage the children and they get that feeling of um, being um, excited about helping the characters in the story. And we were looking at the bit where it talks about um, ice cream uh, for a hot day that doesn't melt. So we got a whole lot of ice lollies and we just, we watched them over the course of a lesson. I was teaching a lesson. We had some ice lollies doing their thing in the corner, just generally melting. And then I got the children to design an experiment to find out which was the best ice lolly for a hot day, which one was best. And we left that best open because I wanted to come back and evaluate. What I really wanted to do was evaluate a test. It didn't matter if we got any results. It mattered that they were engaged. They had to go at designing an experiment and then we evaluated it afterwards. And what we found out was that hanging them upside down, they drip, but they also fall off. But we don't eat ice lollies that way. We eat ice lollies with the ice on the top and the stick on the bottom. So the ones that actually put it that way up and um, had some design, you know, a way of collecting the drips or counting the drips or timing, you know, a way of measuring which one melted first, because of course none of them melted completely, they just fell off eventually, and then that's no good for an isolate. So our definition of best uh, began with the one that um, was liquid last and ended with the one that stayed on the ice lolly stick the longest and um and that was all about evaluating the the results of it were almost entirely useless but we then had another thought about what we do next time and evaluating is a really important um thing to be able to do when you're designing an experiment it's a really big science skill isn't it so that was that was really fun for them, but we did get some great evaluations out of it. Did any of yours manage to make a really good musical but less pretty um, um, item? Definitely, we had a huge range of criteria. Uh, we had a multifunctional one, but I think the best one that produced a melody was a student had filled up different glasses, uh, jars of water, and like was doing the like a xylophone kind of yeah. uh, approach to it and actually created a Mary had a little lamb from Excellent. from the whole tune um, from that, which was was fantastic to see that kind of creativity. And I think by opening ending the task of no set criteria, that's what really will stem the curiosity and therefore their development of, you know, everyone picks something different. And I think it's all about the process. The end result, as you said, doesn't matter so much. It's about the process and how they can move on from that. Yeah, I often praise thinking in my classroom. So they give me a completely wrong answer. And I go, that was amazing thinking. I could see why you think that. And then I'll move on. I won't like 
say that's absolutely wrong I will go brilliant thinking move on and we'll just keep building and eventually we come to an agreed you know but you don't want to stamp out the thinking by saying the answer's wrong so that's that's what you can cultivate in your classroom that sort of open to wrong ideas that are based on you know a good bit of thinking not necessarily correct but a good bit of thinking. Anna, do you have anything to add to that before we move on, on how teachers can ensure that all students, regardless of their learning style or ability, are motivated and engaged? What else is motivating and engaging? Well, uh, you know, it's also when the teachers themselves are super engaged, right? So I was just thinking about uh, something that I've been working in my current school, which is to really get, you know, those teachers to be risk takers and show us their motivation. So, you know, in my meetings with different colleagues, I've just been planting a seed about what if we could do and run a special club? What if I could come and co-teach with you? What if I can plan this with you? Or what if I can put you in contact with the other ones? So as a result, we've just having initiated um, different, different clubs that are running at lunchtime. So some of the students who think like, oh, today's really a day I don't want to go out and play with my friends because for so many reasons, they're just coming in and enjoying uh, different science related clubs. And so and those are also being provided by teachers who themselves didn't see themselves in that position or in yeah. that role. And now they are just loving it and we're already planning for next year how to make it bigger. So I think, you know, once they see the excitement, the smile, the, you know, that, that spark in the teacher's eyes, you know, that's the right motivation to go for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's the thing. If you, you know, if teachers have passions, it's infectious, isn't it? It is. Oh. Um, okay, so that's, that's one of the things that we t we've um, talked about before is that something that can be really motivating is solving a problem. So helping a scenario you know so you you bring them in a scenario and then they have to help solve the problem for um a character or a person and or even bringing a sort of a, a question to them and um getting them to respond to it i remember anna you had some ideas about uh bringing them a scenario that has a level of injustice in it and that motivates yes. them to get involved can you tell yes. us about that yeah, sure. You know, like I normally I call them like the right provocation at the start of a unit or a project. And you're, you're just right. You know, when there's something with a little of injustice there, it really, you know, gets the kids to really be super on top of things and really engaged and motivated. Uh, also, you know, when you show them something that you just question back, you know, how did this happen and why is this needed and why is this happening? You know, you're just provoking them and they will, they will, they will, they will really engage in deep thinking and go like, oh, wait a second. I actually, I don't know much about this or I do know, and I can propose something. And, you know, and then it just lays out as a great opportunity for you to uh, touch upon the different parts of a, you know, that a scientist goes through or that, you know, in an inquiry cycle, you'd like to experience with them. Um, but this provocation, you know, maybe a scenario, maybe a field trip, maybe an experiment that you make. And sometimes, you know, we, we like as well to show them something that we do that it's wrongly made for mm -hmm. a purpose. And so they will go like, no, no, wait a second. You know, I already spotted something there. And why did you do it this way? You don't do it this way. And then 
in that moment, you as the teacher are no longer the center there. The students are then debating already with each other. And I think that's a great way to start. Yeah, you know, absolutely. A, a lesson. And it inspires them to go off and find out more if they are interested and they, they are arguing a particular point. There's a story I use called Jasper the Spider. And um, it um, ends with the spider being eaten by its mate. And it's quite a shock at the end of this story. And they go, do they do that? Do they really? And then they go off and they, they find out about spiders eating one another and which species do and which species don't. And um, it's because it feels like a little bit of an injustice. It's that thing. And there's another lesson I do with two bits of paper, two flat pieces of paper. And I see which one is going to hit the floor first. Mm -hmm. And um, they say, well, they're the, the same. And I said, well, think about the way they're going to fall, which is going to hit the floor first. And they imagine that it's going to be a, you know, a, they're going to fall like this as they, you know, flat piece of paper held flat on. And um, and then you you get everybody to engage. You say, well, you just choose one. Just choose one. We'll see if you're right. And then if they, you know, they all tend to go for one in the end. So I... Um, scrunch up the other one and drop them and they're all cross with me because I cheated but it got them listening and that's what's what's important in that moment and then you can talk about the science behind it so you know all these things they really help don't they to get children just to pay attention and to really think and to make choices on what they think is going to happen that's right I love that example you gave I can just remember that I used also uh, there is a, a video recording of, um, of a NASA experiment when Armstrong and his team went to the moon. Yes. Have you watched that one that he drops the, the yeah. hammer and the feather? Yeah. And then, you know, the kids were like, oh, how, you know, no. And then, yeah. you know, they were really like <laughs> blown up. You know, yeah, absolutely. were blown away by, by that. They have to think about know. why for a moment there, they're taken aback, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. And then he goes, Mr. Galileo was right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Lovely. So um, let's let's go on to our second question, if that's all right. Chris, have you got anything to add before we move on? Uh, not particularly, but I want to okay. just emphasize what, what Anna and yourself have said, that environment is very important and scenario based have to make them believable so they can relate to it. Setting a very hypothetical scenario may not allow students to uh, at least connect the dots to the process involved, but a real life scenario and and, you know, an actual application process will really embed their learning and then go through that process of learning. I, I think you're absolutely right. It's it, if they if they don't feel it's about their world, then it, it's like science lives in a box somewhere else. Whereas if you can show them science is here, everywhere in your world, in your playground. Yeah. yeah. Outside of the classroom is very important. So field trips and experiencing it will create those long standing memories of enjoyment and curiosity. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And you, we can really use field trips really well. And you can you can get science into field trips, um, even if it's not necessarily a science day out. There are always mm. ways to include it. So, you know, if you're out and you're experiencing canoes. You've yeah, got uh, we did a field trip to um, uh, a theme park for roller coasters. This oh, is for the advanced okay. physics class, but they were doing a lot of mathematical calculations from it. So even something that's leisurely has a lot of yeah. science involved in it as well. Absolutely. 
and I think when kids realise there's a job, someone somewhere has the job of working out how to make a roller coaster function with all the angles and the acceleration and then having to stop it at a certain point. Um, you know, that's that's very engaging for kids to realise that there's a job out there that's a roller coaster engineer. It's like when they realise that there's a job of being someone who makes video games, you know, they, they some, suddenly it's something in their world and it invo involves the tech and the science that we're doing in class. But further down the line and it, it, it's also creative i mean that's what i really love is that there's there's a create such a lot of creativity and imagination required to do science you have to be able to imagine the setup of an experiment before you make it you know you, you have to have a level of creativity to be a science a, a scientist and i think children often see it as two separate boxes these are the science people they're with the maths and they live over here and then there's the business people and they live over here and then there's the people who do the art and the English and they live over and it's not like that everything is mixed all the time so it's important to sort of let them see that isn't it so our next question is what strategies can teachers use to create a safe and supportive environment that encourages students to ask questions and explore using their natural curiosity. So what do we do to make it safe for children to ask questions and not feel like they're going to be daft and explore and be curious in the classroom? How do we how do we make it safe and supportive for them? So Anna, do you want to leap in there? Yeah, sure. I mean, like you mentioned before, I believe both you and Chris have mentioned, you know, never waste a good mistake. Uh, and then I think that that is something that is really important that uh, the teacher models and makes the students understand that, you know, we're not going to be judged by, did you get the right product at the end? Because it's all about the process. Okay, like, of course we want to reach the end <laughs> with something that is satisfying, <laughs> but the process is really the learning journey, isn't it? And so um, having the students understanding that and also understanding that in reality, that's the situation. How many times does a scientist in the lab uh, replicates the same experience over and over, uh, right? And and also uh, another point I think is removing um, the fear or anxiety involved in working with materials or being in the lab, especially you know with younger children they will go like, oh don't touch that, don't you know because you have to go through those uh, safety measures and you say like when you're in the lab you know or when you're dealing with materials don't put your hands in the mouth or touch your e or, or eyes or whatever, and then sometimes you know. You're just in the middle of the lesson or wanting to start and a little one says, oh, but I just touched. Am I now sick? You know, so I think there's a lot of anxiety there that you as a teacher need to, you know, make it clear that it is safe to make within the safety uh, grounds. Right. And, and then, um, you know, also helping the students understand what a good question is when we think about asking the questions. Of course, they're still growing their language abilities as well and developing all of that. And therefore, I think modeling um, what a good question looks like and why is it a good question? Can I really investigate something with this question or is it a yes or a no question kind of a thing? And so I, I think that, you know, um, this really needs to be thoughtfully planned. There are nice resources out there. Uh, I personally like a lot the visible thinking from Project Zero. I think there's many things that you can use in the classroom. Um, also, 
to uh, to use the, the the key concepts from the IB PYP program to model the right questions. Which ones allow you to go in depth? Which ones are more of a, a straightforward answer? So uh, you know. I think that the students in the primary age, they normally pick it up quite fast, but you you need to show them that difference. What does it look like and what impact does it have when you're exploring in science with a not so good question? <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's really hard actually for children when they're quite young to generate a question. And I found mm -hmm. one of the things that can be really helpful for getting children to come up with a decent question is to let them play first. So if we're going to answer a question and collect data, let's just play with magnets. Let's see what they do so that we can ask an interesting question about them. Let's just play with things rolling down, um, you know, slopes on different, you know, with different materials on them or different cars or different size cars or sledges. And we'll just ask, you know, have a bit of a play and explore of the equipment that we're going to use um, and so that they can come up with a decent question, because that's when you pique their curiosity and they have a question they want to answer. And sometimes it's they're a bit bonkers. And you facilitate it if you can, because uh, I don't know the answer. I've never rolled things down bumpy surfaces into water and measured them. Can I do it in the classroom? Yeah, I probably can if I can find a tray, you know. So we might have one lesson where we play and we design what experiment we do. And then that I, they give me a shopping list. You know, I have a list of things I have to find for the next lesson. We, we try within reason to um, let them do what they they answer their question in the way they have they have tried but sometimes that prep before you ask a question can be really important and modeling like you say showing them these are questions that will give us an interesting answer these are questions that we'll we'll have to go and look up because we can't do that in the classroom these are questions that will if we tweak this equipment we probably could answer that question you know and think about how you're going to measure what you're going to measure chris do you have anything to um bring for us on what um, strategies we can use to create a safe and supportive environment that encourages children to answer and explore their own questions? I think uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. I think it's about providing opportunities uh, to students to feel safe and explore those things. So you're talking mainly about science practicals. And as we know, primaries do not necessarily have the facilities to do that, but to get them in earlier, encounter those I guess, unfamiliar, maybe unsafe environments that, you know, and get them trained and aware so they're more confident in dealing with these kind of things. Um, excuse my language in this, but sometimes I, you know, there's no such thing as a, a stupid question. And mm. I think more in secondary school, I think there's more fear of that as it goes through, you know, teenagehood and the culpability of that. But it can be very much nurtured through the development of questioning from the teacher but also ensuring that environment allows that to not allow any students to like mock or laugh and go, no, yeah. there's no yeah. such thing as a, a silly question yeah. here. Everyone's able to Good speak thinking. Their mind Yeah, regardless. brilliant thinking. Let's move on mm -hmm. and find another answer. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. I, I think that is really key. So you celebrate everything. Every time they give it a go, you celebrate that. Nothing else yeah. matters. And so- As well as the, um, as well as the resilience. So let's say I drop a bottle. It's not mm. the end of the world, or I accidentally spill something. If you educate them to see those hazards, those risks, and, and develops those, as you said, there's no such thing as a wasted mistake. Do it again, change something. Yeah. Doesn't work, do it again, change something. 
until it does work. Uh, and those opportunities need to be promoted rather than maybe a teacher overstepping and go, nope, this is how you do it. Because that stamps out that progression. Do, do allow them to reach that answer themselves. Yeah. And I, I think... I think so. Ofsted in Britain has been very critical of the science lessons where children investigate, but the real science isn't uh, explained fully at any point. So I think you're absolutely right. You give them a chance to discover it, but then you might work through it as a demo at the end so that everybody gets the chance to sort of see your thinking and see the logic of what's been going on during that experiment. So I think there's a there's a definite call for a, a very explicit demonstration, but after. I think discovery is really motivating for children, isn't it? I see a lot of joy on the children's faces when they see something they haven't seen before. And I didn't tell them it was going to happen. So this is exciting, you know, and those are those are nice moments. So um, I, one of the things that I've looked at, particularly to get discussion going in the classroom, is um, you give them an ambiguous problem to look at and then you don't ever give a right answer. So you just let them go, is it this? Is it that? I think you're right because of this. I, you know, so for example, there's a, a, you know, if you have one of those lights where you touch the base and it bright goes, goes on, gets brighter, gets brighter, and then goes off on the fourth tap. And you, you, you go, how does that work? And you, I, I, I actually don't know. I have a sort of a vague understanding that it's probably is to do with something to do with the conductivity of my finger and that's flicking a switch inside somewhere. But I don't have a good grasp of that. But as a primary school teacher, uh, what's important is that they then go, Ooh, what happens if you touch it with a sock? What happens if I touch it with my nose? What happens if I touch it with a metal thing? Because electricity and metal things go together and getting that sort of, you know, just exploring and, and getting them to sort of listen to each other and discuss. And nobody has the right answer because then you get them feeling if, if you act as an interested onlooker without rather than the expert, they're more motivated to throw their ideas into the room because no one's going to say incorrect correct you know you're not going to be judged so having that sort of ambiguous I don't know the answer what should we do you know and just explore together can be very liberating some of the best uh science teachers in primary school I've seen are the ones that are naturally curious they don't have any science background but they are quite excited about things like that and that's catching isn't it so sometimes not knowing the answer can be really good. <laughs> Does that make sense? Totally. I, I think that's, and, and, you know, and, and in reality, you know, I feel that it's one of the, the challenges as well for, for us teachers, because you can be so much surprised by the knowledge or the, the content of the questions of your students, then you go like, oh, I also have to research that myself. And that's okay, you know? Yeah. And so, and then you just go like, oh, let's research all together. And you just really go through the process with your students. And, and I think that's, that's a, great, a great opportunity for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's something that has a definitive answer, you can, you know, science doesn't know everything. No. That's also a good point to make. So if there is an answer out there, you can all go off and see if you can find it and bring it back the next lesson. So there's no, there's no need to know everything. In order and it's, to no, 
And it's so exciting when the students also see, oh, Miss or Mr. is also so engaged as, as I am. So let's see who finds the answer first. You know, like the, the students really like to see that, uh, you know, it's not that it's all already been set up for them, but yeah. when they see, you know, the teacher going through the process, they also have uh, another motivation, another engagement yeah, and more fun in the lesson, I would say. So we, we need that sort of mix between being the expert and being demonstrating the correct answer, but also moments where we don't we don't stop them. We we let the dialogic talk carry on and let them try and work it out as much as possible. Um, our third question is: How can they encourage students to pursue science beyond the classroom? So this is one of the questions that gets asked a lot. Where is it that children start dividing themselves into? I am a scientist, I am not a scientist. And, you know, how can we encourage all children to um, see themselves as, as science is just part of life? So um, do you want to come in on that one, Chris? How can we encourage students to pursue science beyond the classroom? I guess your guitar is one of those things. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I think that initial spark moment is where some encounter that a student has had throughout their life experience will dictate the pathway that they'll go through. There is some level of parental pressure of like, you know, I guess this is culturally depending on the country you're in, like you must be a doctor, you must be this, you must be that. Yeah. But uh, to emphasize a, an earlier point, I think we, we discussed is that a science does not just mean the guy in the lab coat, you know, and I think, and, and after discussing further with my, our primary here, they actually did, what does a scientist look to you in the lower school? And it was, very diverse in terms of what people showed up and dressed up with so you know i think there is that intrinsic value coming from the people but mm. i think uh you know there's just going to be one moment it will take to get a student involved in science beyond the classroom for life do you know i remember that moment i remember um i was picked to do a science fair um we were doing a um a project on newts because you could do anything, it was the 70s. And so we had newts in the classroom and um, I helped build a, 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 a sort of a baby bath full of things that the newts might like and habitat for them and then took them to this science fair and handled them and I really liked them. And that I think is the beginning, I did zoology at university and I think that was the beginning of where that happened it wasn't just liking pets and wanting to be a vet it was a sort of an interest in the natural world um that took me that way and feeling like I might be good at that that was important um but also just being I mean I don't think I was a particular you know star in the classroom um you know I was only 10 and I but I know that that was something that that interested me and it was a little moment that made me want to go you know look into that even more so what other things can we do that that encourage students to pursue science beyond the classroom um Anna Anna tell us yeah. what your thoughts are yeah and I I think you know a lot of course starts in at school you know where you ignite that passion uh where you uh support student initiated action and I think that in, in, the, in the primary school, you know, just because of the age and the emotional development of the students, as Chris has said, they're more likely to take risks. You know, they're not looking so much about 
their mistakes and how it will look like. So I think they're more genuine in that sense and you can really explore. Um, and and when, when you are challenging your students and asking them, you know, what else can you do about this experiment? Do you think it has an impact in the real life? Uh, what can you do? What, how, you know, if someone in the world would have done in the same way as you've done, do you think it would have an impact? And normally, you know, many students pick up on that and like to really engage and initiate and come up with some sort of action afterwards. Uh, it could be an action in school, could be sometimes, you know, an action outside of school. And this is when it becomes really challenging because they are so young. How do you support them? And, and this is when I think that parents come to this game and they really need to be partners in supporting and fostering the love of science in their students. Um, and, and, and then it gets to this dimension when it's school, home, environment, all working yeah. together to let those little ones really come up with bright ideas and, you know, and, and start that love to make a change in the world in the future. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it, I mean, I, I know that I'm unusual in that both my parents uh, were scientists. My dad was into physics. Uh, my mother was a chemist. And um, so I had quite a lot of science capital. My grandfather was an engineer. We used to go on day trips to the museums and look at traction engines and things. So I have um, I have that and I was very lucky to have that. And I think it took me a long time to realize that other people didn't have that growing up. And so there's a there's a, a responsibility of, of the school to provide as much of that as we can. And going on trips is one thing, but um, are there, is there anything else we can do to encourage the children um, to see themselves as scientists later on or see themselves in a future role is there an, uh, any other ways to, for us as teachers to help that process giving the children some science capital well i, I think beyond what you're already doing in the classroom i think it's really seeing what other possibilities outside of school or as as extracurricular could be provided to you and sometimes it's even just that emotional support and push and celebrate that learning, you know, and, and, and schools can be, you know, very creative on that by providing, you know, uh, celebration moments where you invite the community or um, seeing that a child really has that passion and you go like, okay, you know, I can help you with this. Do you want to, do you want to, what do you want to do with this? Do you want me to help you to set up a, a I don't know, a, 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 a moment of show and tell to an older class or yeah. to a younger class you know, and then they can see themselves outside of the classroom. It's not an assessment task. Yes. It's a, a love and a passion task. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, we just need to really be creative and see that what can we take from our surrounding as well? I mean, maybe in the local area, you know, there are possibilities mm. for them to go and have a day of shadowing, I don't know, a scientist or an engineer or, you know, whatever it's yeah. available. And parents can be really key on this because they have lots of connections. Uh, and then they, you know, if you reach out to the parents and say, you know, who does know someone who can, yes. you know, and I think it's really vital that we as schools really reach out to the community because otherwise we just live it inside of the school and that's too small for our students nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. The, the, their world is much bigger, yeah. isn't it? And, and they need to see 
everything that's out there if possible. Oh, Chris is back. He had to change yeah. classrooms. He's just <laughs> back in again. Nice to see you. We're just talking about how to improve children's um, science capital, what we can do as teachers if they don't have lots of science going on at home in their environment. So um, Anna was saying, you know, linking up with a local environment, but you can also get... Um, I've had people zoom in, uh, you know, if there are people far away. I mean, we've we've had um, we've had offers from people who are doing polar bear exploration, tracking the bears and looking at their lives and getting them to zoom in. Farmers zooming in, and um, yeah, it just it's sort of jumping on those moments where you go, oh, you do something interesting. Would you come and talk to my class? Because often people people will. So, Chris, have you got any other um, good ideas for improving that science capital for the children who don't have a background of science at home? I think it's collaboration between entire communities. Uh, we have an abundance of material online. We have professors at universities, if applicable, and you know sometimes we liaise with them. We have plenty of uh, you know working professionals in all variety of fields. Um, even the idea of just messaging someone on LinkedIn and going hey, can you tell me a bit about this job? Uh, you know, this is more for seniors, of course, but, you know, could you do a Zoom call present to my class about your job? You know, and, and that can link to the all parents getting involved with, you know, we've had a, an engineer come down and tell us, well, how did they build the offshore, uh, you know, oil rigs that are going on and the risks and the safeties there. So I think it really is a collective agreement between an entire community, not just, teacher going out yeah. you know I might go up to someone in another school go hey I'm a science teacher I'd like to do something with the kids if you're okay with that I know there's certain barriers and you need certain police checks within the UK but I think that's obviously it's essential but those are some of the barriers that might deter just the average professional wanting to be in the school environment so I think some uh, modification to including the community at maybe a policy level uh, and visitor pass might be uh, a good collaboration yeah I I, I'm, I think you're absolutely right getting people and we all if you sort of think about it we all have people that um you know we've met once or we've seen or and I have approached people on Twitter and um asked and I've had people zoom into school who I've literally just asked on Twitter would you mind your job looks really interesting would you mind and um or get them to do a a very quick uh, speech to camera and then send it to you. That can be something that's really exciting too. So, or bringing in something that's in the news. That's that's always something that's really quite nice. So we were doing Mary Anning and um, they dug up an ichthyosaur uh, in the Midlands. And it's, it's huge. It's like three double deckers long or something. It's enormous. And they, um, uh, it was on the news, so I recorded it and then took it to school and went, look at this, isn't this amazing, you know, and bring it into real life. So I think that's use everything you can. And like you say, don't make it just about that one teacher. Ask, you know, beyond, collaborate, and then you'll find that you've got more people that you can rely on. Um, our last question is, how important is it for teachers to foster a love of science in primary school students? And what can Im what impact can this have on their future education? So what do we do at primary school that affects their education later? Um, I'm going to jump in first there. And I think there is something about if I can see it, I can be it. So I don't 
when I'm teaching science, I never wear a white coat. I was a zoologist when I was doing science in that way. And zoologists wear practical clothing for being outside unless they're doing microbiology. Um, so you, you, being a person who models, um, being a bit flowery and uh, also being into acting and being that cross section of lots of different things all combined can be quite powerful. And I have met children who I've taught at age, you know, 9 to 11, and then I've met them in the supermarket age 15, 16, 17, because I live in the local area. And they tell me that they're studying chemistry for A-level. And I'm completely surprised because they were the ones that were into pink hair clips and, and you know, painting their nails. And that's where, where they seem to exist age 10. And I just love the fact that they didn't write science off. And, you know, at that point as being different from them. So being sort of within, um, you know, a, a young person's norm and not being something other, I think is quite important. And um, so I wonder, I wonder what you think. So um, Chris, have you got something to add to that? So yes, I also agree with the idea of, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. I think the biggest barrier for let's say those in, in primary is that they may not have had a, a love for science themselves when they're at school. So they've got that intrinsic, what should we say, that internal, I guess, worry is that, oh my God, do I not know? Am I, you know, what do I do about it when I'm asked questions? And, and I think it also needs to be a safe space for them to be able to go and develop themselves and seek assistance or development, whichever avenue that that's possible. But it does make such an impact on the transition, particularly in secondary, you know which class had uh, a very engaging and motivational uh, science teacher within their primary education. So I think it's, it's critical that there is that fostering from below. But again, it's not a complex process. Science isn't necessarily complex. I think it's just there's a, a fear factor of that unfamiliarity and then the access to resources to really make science shine. Um, and I think COVID and online now has just opened up an abundance of opportunity that is yet to be um, utilized among a lot of uh, teaching communities. Yeah, there is there is definitely more stuff out there that you can uh, borrow, watch, you know, be inspired by. Anna, so I'll just repeat the question. How important is it for teachers to foster a love of science in primary school students and what impact can this have on their future education? Well, super important. And I agree to what Chris uh, just mentioned, you know, and I think that um, in, in terms of, of the teachers themselves, they have as well to understand the importance of science in the future uh, for the students, yeah. uh, because it doesn't, it's not just about teaching the science content and knowledge itself. It's about all the skills that learning about science brings to the students, you know, those thinking skills, those strategies, those approaches to learning that just come because you have to do all of those sorts of things. And on top of that, it also, you know, helps the students to learn how to learn and how to interact with others because there are so many different uh, possibilities to work in the group work with uh, interviewing people with, so there's a lot of dimensions that the students explore, go through, and as well an opportunity for transdisciplinary learning, like to other subjects, as you said, Jules, yourself before, you know, it's not an isolated subject, 
you know, you may have to, you know, use your language skills to read, interpret, write a summary or a report. So there is a lot of connections there. But going back as well to, to the question about how to foster the love of science, and I agree with Chris when saying that the science teachers in the primary school do also have the responsibility to be agents of their own learning. If they are not yet so equipped, what can I do as a teacher to get myself there? Yeah. You know, and so you as the adult there in the room also have to, you know, be courageous and take that step forward. There's a lot out there um, and there's a lot of think, collegiality as well out there and collaboration opportunities. So I think, you know, it really needs to start with a teacher. And then, you know, we in the primary school are also creating the foundation for what the secondary teachers are going to have and what they can do with the students. So the more we can get them prepped, you know, the secondary teachers can explore it further. And yeah. so um, there's, yeah, so I think there's a lot to consider. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. We are responsible uh, at, at, at primary level for making sure we make it something that feels accessible and exciting for them. And it does start with us and we need to go and get to a point where we feel confident. And um, there's so much out there that you can do. I mean, there's a lot of, there are, I mean, there are primary science schemes that you can look at and use and you don't have to rely on them completely, but they can be inspiring. And there are some online that are free here or, you know, very low cost. You don't have to buy into something expensive. And there's also, like I was saying, loads of videos out there that are really useful to watch, watching teachers do something. Because um, whenever we learn anything, the first thing we do is watch someone and do it the same. Then we watch someone and we do it slightly differently because we start to understand what they're doing and then we bring our own character into it. And eventually you get to a point where you can take something from a book and process it and do it in your own way. But you have to go out and, and try. Some of the best trainings I've seen have been very gradual where you get to try and then so you do one session and then you you try it out and then you go back for another session and you build on it and then you you know you go back for another session so if you're looking for trainings the, the best ones i've seen have been more than one day one day is brilliant for a bit of inspiration but you need time to learn and ideally that would be in the in the teacher training there'll be a lot more science in the teacher training but um if it's not there then as a teacher there is a responsibility to go out and find out and it isn't so tricky to do that and if you are someone confident then you know it's sort of your responsibility to mentor someone very gently you know here let's do a lesson at a time let's you know give that time um because i need it for other subjects and you know that it's a reciprocal arrangement isn't it so chris is back again we lost you for a moment there do you want to add anything for to the question, how important is it for teachers to foster a love of science in primary school students and what impact can this have on their future education? Is there anything you want to add to that? I think, I'm um, sorry if I missed up anything earlier. The, the last thing I probably want to add is that I think we mentioned it a, a little bit earlier is the idea of separating science from like a, a one singular aspect and that embedding in primary that, you know, this is biology, this is chemistry, this is physics, because it gives the students an awareness of which discipline of science that they actually may enjoy. So I, I'm a biologist, but I equally love chemistry. I can do physics, but I'm not particularly a love of physics, but it, it helps give people choice. Because I think the name tag science is a bit 
Yeah. It's too, too simplified. I think we need to just break it down a little bit more uh, for both teachers and students. I mean, they can maybe see the links, but particularly for secondary, it's more broken up and more clear what science is being done, where, what, and why. And I think when the teachers understand it better, and can then bring their own love because as you said you are a zoologist so you must be more of a biology passionate person than a physicist but that doesn't mean the love for the process of the science and the learning is not there and that will be transformed to the kids through observation of your engagement in the activity so I think that's really really important uh, to break it up into those chunks yeah and I don't I think you're right we don't necessarily break it up into those chunks um and it is important because otherwise you could end up writing off the whole of um, science mentally because you don't like the dissection of the heart or you didn't enjoy electricity as a topic. So I do think um, it's a good idea to say, no, there's lots and lots of different compartments of science within that. So we have had such an interesting conversation thank you so much for your time I've really enjoyed hearing about you know hearing other people who do the same job as I do but in a totally different context so um thank you really lovely to meet you both uh, and I'm gonna um pass back to Max there thanks so much guys that was that was super interesting and um yeah like, like Jill said just to reiterate that listening to all your different perspectives from, you know, practical insights, actual insights from different contexts that, that you're all working in. Um, but on the same subject, it is so interesting. And, um, you know, taking science outdoors um, into another context, you know, the points that you made about um, seeing science as a way of thinking, not just one of the subject, which is super, super interesting. And, um, and, and then reaching out to professionals in the real world to, to sort of inspire kids as well. So yeah, plenty of of things to pick up on there um yeah and hopefully we can have a part two session sometime soon uh maybe get some other perspectives from other other science teachers from international schools around the world um from, from different contexts too so yeah thank you once again for your time and um yeah super super interesting conversation